Well, this is our third Sunday in our mini-series on Jesus, and we're looking today at the aspect that Jesus is the greatest teacher of all time. Now, all of us have had teachers in our lives. Our parents are the most influential teachers we will encounter, and to those, we add elementary school teachers and then high school teachers. For some of us, the next step was apprenticeship. For others, college or university or graduate studies. Along the way, we have great teachers and we have terrible teachers. Years ago, there was uh, a man named Yasha Heifetz. He was one of the greatest violinists of the 20th century. And he was born in Russia, but as he increased his skills, he began to be noticed. He began to play with symphonies all over the world. And at the height of his fame, he was traveling all around the world, playing in the biggest concert halls. Uh, before rock stars, this guy was a violin rock star. And kind of at the peak of his absolute fame, when he was the most popular, everyone knew his name, he decided to step away from performing. And he was offered a teaching job at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. And a reporter asked him, he said, why now? Why at the height of your fame are you stepping away to take a teaching job? And he said, well, two things. Number one, if violin playing isn't passed on to the next generation, it will perish. This is something that needs to be taught. But he goes, more than that, he goes, when I was growing up in Russia and my old Russian violin teacher, he told me, he said, Yasha, one day when you get really, really accomplished at the violin, when you reach you know, the height of your, your abilities and your, your performing abilities, he goes, at that point, finally, you will be ready to teach. Now, that is a master teacher. At the opposite end of the scale was a teacher in a college, and this college was known for their biology program. And if you were a student in this biology program, you had one required course that you absolutely had to take, no ifs, ands, or buts, and it was on ornithology, the study of birds. And this class was feared because the professor was so tough. He was just brutal. And, uh, and so every student that came into the class kind of came in with fear and trembling. And so at the beginning, he says, okay, this is the way our class is going to work. 20% of your grade is from the coursework. And we'll have little quizzes along the way, but 80% of your mark is the final exam. And here's the date of the final. So he goes, we're going to work really hard to study for that final exam. Everyone's like, yep, okay. And there's so much fear because of his reputation that they took notes. They listened to everything he said. They read the textbook. They, they just, everyone tries so hard, and they finally, the day came for the final exam. And the students walk in, and all the, the desks were arranged in kind of a semicircle, and there on the stage was a table, and on the table were five bird cages. And those cages were covered three-quarters of the way down, and all they could see underneath the part that was left open was the bird's legs and the bird's feet. And the professor got up and said, all right, I have chosen these five birds. Now your final exam is to come up and look at the legs and feet of these birds, and I want you to identify those five birds. Everyone's just freaking out. 
They're thinking, we've, we've gone crazy, we've studied, we've done everything we could possibly do. No one is ready for this exam. This is off the charts, this is crazy. The students are sweating, they're freaking out. No one knows what to do. Finally, this one guy gets up and he goes, this is the most ridiculous exam I've ever heard of. And he goes, you, sir, are the worst professor in this school. He goes, I'm not doing this test. And he says, that's it, I'm out of here. And he turns and he walks towards the door. And the, just as he's getting towards the door, the professor says, young man, stop. So he stops and he says, turn around. So he turns around and he looks at him. And he says, young man, I demand to know your name. And the guy looks at him for a second. And then he reaches down and he pulls up his pant legs and says, you tell me. There are good teachers and there are bad teachers. Today, we're going to look at the greatest teacher of all time, Jesus Christ. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6 or start the app on your smartphone. And we're going to dive in together. John chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over, by those who had entered, who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Absolutely incredible miracle. And I want to make the case this morning that part of what Jesus was doing by doing that miracle as he is making the best object lesson that any teacher has ever done. And Jesus certainly captures the attention of this massive crowd. The text says it numbered over 5,000 men. Now, it says that in our English Bibles in brackets. And I kind of wondered as I was working on this week, I was like, huh, why is it in brackets? 
I was like, Did the, is that like the English translators kind of put in the little brackets and put in that information? Are they kind of saying it from the context? So I looked it up, and sure enough, it says it right there in the original Greek. 5,000 men. Now, that's meant to imply that they only counted the men, that there was women and children there as well. We know for sure there was one kid. He was the kid who, who had the lunch. He had five little barley loaves and two fish. Now, the most conservative estimate, if we think, okay, we got 5,000 men, if there were half that many women, then we're already at 7,500. If we add in the same amount of kids, we're at 10,000 without even trying. This is a miracle on a massive scale, massive proportion. Our central assertion this morning is that Jesus is the greatest teacher that ever lived. Now, a good teacher grabs your attention right away at the beginning of the class and focuses you on the lesson to come. Jesus, however, isn't just a good teacher. Jesus is the master teacher. And he grabs their attention, if you think about it, with all five senses. Jesus grabs their attention with sight. As Jesus lifted up those five barley loaves and those two fish, and he prayed, he lifted them up, and he prayed for God's blessing. The people watched him do that. Do you notice in the text he said, get the people to sit down. Why would Jesus do that? Well, they were on a hillside. As everyone sat down, then everyone can see. Everyone's got a view. So right away, Jesus is engaging their eyes, their visual sense. And then when Jesus blesses it and begins to multiply, the disciples begin to hand it out in baskets. Everyone would touch it. They would grab the barley. They would take as much as they needed. They would take the fish. Their, their sense of touch is being engaged. And then as they began to break that, that bread, and as they, they broke open that fish, you would begin to, to smell that warm barley bread and that fish. Their, their sense of smell was engaged. And then you can start to hear the, the crowd, the oohs and the ahs, they would be hearing. And then finally they get to taste it, they get to eat it, and it says everyone had as much as they wanted, and there was still 12 baskets left over. Jesus is a master teacher. He has completely grabbed their attention. Now Jesus doesn't just do this as a great opening object lesson. Jesus does this because he's intending to give them a sign that is about something deeper, a deeper truth, pointing to who he really is. Ultimately, this miracle shows the power of God. God alone has the power to create, to create out of nothing, multiply a massive amount of physical things. Now, Jesus was doing this so that the crowd would begin to think, wait a second, we are good Jews. We've learned our entire lives that God alone has the power to create. We just saw someone create. Hmm. Maybe when Jesus is going around claiming to be the Son of God, maybe there is validity to his claim. Huh. Now, we look at it and we go, all right, Pastor Darren, I can accept that. Jesus clearly great at setting up an amazing object lesson to catch people's attention, begin to communicate the lesson. But how exactly does that apply to all of us sitting here this morning? 
What are you telling me? Should I invite my neighbors over for a barbecue, but only start with one hamburger? And then just pray, God, just bless that hamburger, please. Is that what I'm trying to tell you this morning? No, that'd be weird and kind of unnecessary. Here's what I do want us to understand. I want us to understand it on two levels. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just checking this out for the first time. You're thinking, is this church legit? Is Jesus real? Then you need to wrestle with the implication of this miracle. You see, Jesus backed up his claim to be the Son of God, to be equal with God the Father. He backed it up by doing a miracle of intense and awesome creative power. J.A.R.R. Tolkien, the Oxford professor famous for writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he showed in his, in his novels, he showed this play out, that evil cannot create something. It only has the power to take what is good and pervert, mutate, and twist it into something evil. In those novels, we meet the, the elves, they're on the left there, and then we meet those awful creatures, the orcs. And at some point in those novels, we actually find out that the orcs started out as elves, but the evil came and mutated and twisted and perverted it and corrupted it. And what Tolkien's trying to tell us is that evil cannot create. Only God is full of goodness and power and life and truth. Only God has the ability to create life, to create matter. And that Jesus is what Jesus wanted to demonstrate with this miracle. God the Father and I are one in our essence. I have the power to only do what God can do. So if you're here this morning wondering if any of this was true, you need to wrestle with Jesus' claim to be the Son of God and how the miracle of feeding over 10,000 with five loaves and two fish backed up that claim. Maybe you're here, on the other hand, and you've been following Jesus for many years. Then you have a different application this morning. And our application this morning is our lives are the object to be the object lesson to those around us. Just as Jesus created the ultimate object lesson to capture the attention of his audience, so Jesus plunks us on a street, in a neighborhood, in an apartment building. Jesus puts us there, and he says, I want your life to be the object lesson. How do we do that? By serving, demonstrating love to people, one after the other. Our board encouraged me to use my study week that I'm given every year. So last week I got to go over to Vancouver and I attended the Regent Pastors Conference. One of the speakers was a name, lady named Karen Wilk. And uh, she is with the Christian Reformed Church in North America. And she's one of their kind of missional team leaders. She is, uh, talks and, and works to help churches start living out their faith in their neighborhoods. And this woman lives out what her job is. And she lives it out on her street. And she told us an amazing story. She said she felt God prompting her to start a weekly potluck meal on her street. She lives in Edmonton. And so spring comes, the snow melts, everyone thaws out, and everyone comes outdoors. And she says, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to start that weekly potluck meal. And so the first week, they have about 10 people, and they're getting to know everyone, and it's pretty great. And everyone had such a good time and said, we got to do this next week. So they did it the next week. And the next week, this woman showed up. And this woman had gone through an awful situation. Her husband had had an affair on her. And when she found out about it, he left her. 
And she was just so devastated, and she turned to alcohol to kind of drown her pain and her sorrow. And so by the time this woman, months later, comes to this potluck dinner, she has got a major alcohol problem. And the woman actually came to the potluck completely drunk. But they showed her love and grace, and despite her loud and obnoxious comments, they just kind of showered her with love. And this lady showed up the next week. And she said, you know, it was really interesting. It took about a month. And then she finally came to the potluck sober. She goes, that was a nice thing. And she said, and then a couple more months, she said, you know, this woman just began to relax. And one day she came over and she just had this incredible conversation with Karen, laid out her whole story and her pain and everything in her life. Karen was able to pray for her. And it began an incredible relationship and incredible friendship. About another month after that, she said the most amazing thing happened. There, this woman comes over, knocks on her door, says, Karen, Karen, did you hear about Susan? She just had a baby. Someone should take a meal over. I'm going to go do that right now. And so this woman took, changed from just receiving to now she was giving. And it was shortly after that that Karen had a chance to fully explain to her what it means to follow Jesus, and she gave her heart to Christ. And when I say that our lives need to be the object lesson, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Probably wasn't that comfortable for Karen and her family, that potluck when this woman showed up drunk. But they showered her with love and grace. They became the object lesson that spoke so loudly into her life. Now, as soon as I say that, objections begin to form in your mind. Pastor Aaron, that sounds really great, but I'm I'm just way too busy, or I'm too shy, or I can't cook, or I wouldn't know what to say to someone. You know, in the winter, we had a, went through the series on the book of Jeremiah, and we looked at this mighty prophet of God, Jeremiah. But in the very beginning, Jeremiah wasn't bold and fearless. That was a process he had to learn, he had to go through. And his excuse in Jeremiah 1-7 is pretty classic. God told me, Don't say, I'm only a boy. I'll tell you where to go, and you'll go there. I'll tell you what to say, and you'll say it. Don't be afraid of a soul. I'll be right there looking after you. And what God said to Jeremiah, he says to each and every one of us, Jesus, the ultimate teacher, won't let us get away with our excuses. He calls us to be the object lesson wherever we live. Whether that's Duncan or Crofton or Shimanus, Saltaire, Ladysmith or Cedar. Well, now that he's firmly captured the attention of the audience, they want more. And despite Jesus' attempt to kind of escape, they chase him down. And that's when Jesus kicks into full teaching mode. We're going to pick up the story in John 6, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus, Jesus, the bread of life. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, When did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I perform, 
but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. We're discovering today that Jesus is in fact the greatest teacher who ever lived. And those verses we just read begin to show us why a good teacher answers their students' questions concisely and in a direct way. But a master teacher like Jesus answers the question behind the question. Bible scholar RVG Tasker says this, he says, instead of answering their question, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus struck at the root of their materialistic aspirations. Their belief in him was in reality unbelief, for it was based on a complete misunderstanding of the miracle he had wrought. To them, it was not a sign of his divinity, his godness, but evidence that he possessed some magical power of supplying men's physical necessities. They had not yet reached the first stage of Christian faith, which consists of profound dissatisfaction on the part of man with his spiritual condition. They had no sense of the seriousness of sin, no longing for a higher kind of life. You see, these dim-witted Galileans just wanted Jesus to do another cool party trick, multiply more bread and fish. They're essentially saying, sweet action, Jesus, we won't have to work so hard. We won't have to farm the grain. We won't have to grind it up, make the flour, bake the bread. We won't have to go fishing. You're awesome, Jesus. Can you do that again? It was all a smokescreen. They weren't understanding either their need or who Jesus truly was. The central point Jesus wants to communicate is, believe in me. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. I'm the Son of God, equal with the Father. I've proved my claim is valid through the miraculous sign I performed yesterday. Stop focusing on physical bread, Jesus says. He says, I am the bread of life. If you follow me and trust me as the Lord of your life, I will fill you with purpose, peace, and strength far beyond what bread out of the oven can ever give you. We must point others to the bread of life. Right away, objections jump into our mind when we think of a high calling, that we have to point other people to Jesus, to be the bread of life, the one who sustains us, fulfills us like nothing else can. A lot of people have said to me, well, Pastor, I just don't know enough about the Bible. I can't really point people towards Jesus. I want to say this morning, yes, you do. If you know Jesus, even if you're at the beginning of the journey, you already know the difference he's made in your life. You have something to share. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to tell what Jesus has done in your life. Then right away we think, well, um, what are we paying the pastors in this church for anyways? Isn't it their job to go tell everybody? No, actually, it's not. And Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 gives us, as pastors, a basic job description. It says we are to equip the saints, that would be all of us collectively, to do the work of the ministry. Now, I certainly have a role. I'm supposed to model it. I'm supposed to do it myself and then invite the rest of us to come along with it. But this is a job that all of us are supposed to do. 
There's a man named George Eliot. He's one of the more famous English poets. And he wrote a poem about Stradivarius, the legendary violin maker. I want you to listen to this poem. It kind of struck me. It says, If my hand slacked, I should rob God, since he is fullest good, leaving a blank instead of violins. He could not make Antonio Stradivari's violins without Antonio. Now, what is he saying in this poem? Is he saying God can't make a violin? No, God can make a violin. God could create a violin out of thin air if he wanted to. But what the poem says is he couldn't make a Stradivarius violin without Antonio Stradivarius. You see, God can do things without us, but God chooses to work through us. Because in the mystery of God's economy, the mystery of God's plans and the way he sets things up, he wants to use us. He wants to use you, and he wants to use me. And when I think about God's desire to reach this community, I think, you know what? God could do it another way. But for whatever reason, God has chosen to use the local church. He's chosen to use Ocean View Community Church as part of that plan. I want to hit you with another poem. This is from a man named R.E. Neighbor. He says, Bring to God your gift, my brother. He will not need to call another. You will do. He will add his blessing to it. And the two of you will do it. God and you. That's a huge, there's a huge amount of joy in getting on mission with Jesus, in doing God's work, partnering with God to see amazing things happen. My wife Lori's been helping out at uh, Ladysmith Primary School. Our youngest daughter Malia's in grade three there. And uh, so she's been volunteering in the class and trying to help. And there's one little boy, his name is Louie. And Louis comes from a pretty rough background. Uh, Louis's dad left him when he was four years old, and uh, he kind of carries that pain around. And his mom has had just a really awful time of it. They moved from New Brunswick. They've moved out to, to Ladysmith, and they're trying to start life over here and make a start. And she finally got a job. But life is pretty tough for Louis. And so Lori's began to work with Louis, and the teacher will send Louis out with Lori. And Lori discovered this little guy loves to cook. He doesn't know anything about cooking, but he loves to cook. And so this past Wednesday, Lori got to, to cook with Louie. And the teacher said, look, we're all trying to do stuff about Canada in, for Canada's 150th birthday. So she says, can you teach Louie something about Canada while you cook? And Lori says, yeah, I can figure that out. And so she decided, we're going to make pancakes, there's a good Canadian food, and we're going to use maple syrup from Quebec. And we're going to get out a map, and we're going to show Louis that maple syrup comes from trees and where it's grown, and it comes all the way over and all this kind of stuff. And so Louis, she said it's the most interesting thing. It's like he's got layers. And it takes about 15 or 20 minutes for the layers to crack. And finally, Louis comes out of his shell. And so they finally got to the point where they had made the pancakes and they had done a test and all this. And then Lori says, all right, Louie, what we're going to put on is maple syrup. And she explained what it was. And he said, it comes from trees? And she said, yeah, yeah, it does. And, and he's like, I don't think I would like that. I, and she's like, well, Louie, just try it. And so, of course, he tries. And he's like, whoa, this is amazing. 
And so they got to create their first prototype pancake, and they put little sliced strawberries, little whipped cream, and, uh, and maple syrup on it. And Louis just puts his head back. Louis said it was the cutest thing. And he just goes, oh, Mrs. Laurie, this is the best thing of my whole life. And, and he just kept going on. And as they worked together, she said, all right, Louie, now we got to get busy. we got to make a pancake for every kid in your class. And we're going to make it look beautiful, and we're going to put maple syrup on it. So then at the end of the class, they got to go outside, and every kid got a little plate and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and the transformation in Louie was just amazing. And so at the end, all the kids have gone and the principal and the teacher are there, and they said, Lori, we have been working with this kid all year long. We don't know how this happened today. Because this kid never comes out of his shell. He never breaks out of it. But somehow today, this kid was reached. And Lori looked at him, and she said, Principal and teacher, the only reason that happened to Louie is God. And I think when we look at a poem like that and it says, God will add his blessing to it. The two of you will do it, God and you. That's the kind of stuff that God is waiting to do through us. All right, so Jesus grabbed everybody's attention with the ultimate object lesson. He directed them to their main point. And now he brings the lesson to a a pointed climax at the end. Let's pick it up in John chapter 6, verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me. But raise them up at the last day, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the very last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give you for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I've entitled this third and final point, The Heart of the Matter. And it's pretty clear in those verses, Jesus himself is the heart of the matter. Is Jesus a trustworthy teacher? Is Jesus credible and believable? I love this statement by Philip Yancey in his award-winning book, The Jesus I Never Knew. Yancey makes the following comment about Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Yancey writes, When I first heard the Beatitudes, they sounded to me like impossible ideals given by some dreamy mystic. Now, though, I see them as truths proclaimed by a realist, every bit as pragmatic as a general in the heat of battle. Jesus knew how life works in the kingdom of heaven as well as the kingdom of this world. In a life characterized by poverty, mourning, weakness, meekness, a hunger for righteousness, mercy, purity, peacemaking, and persecution, Jesus himself embodies the Beatitudes. You see, Jesus is believable as a teacher because he always did what he taught. Jesus was a fearless teacher. Jesus doesn't shy away from saying the truth, even when he knows it'll be controversial amongst his audience. You see, Jesus ultimately isn't teaching just to inform people. Jesus is teaching to transform people. The path to transformation in the spiritual realm always goes through Jesus. That is the bold and radical and unpopular claim that Jesus said about himself 2,000 years ago. And in our current cultural climate of 2017, that's an extremely offensive thing to say. People scream back, how arrogant, how narrow, how exclusive to say that Jesus is the only path of salvation. For 2,000 years, everyone who has put their faith in Jesus comes to realize that he is the only way. He is the highest truth, and he's the only one who is completely trustworthy. We don't say that with an attitude of triumphalism or arrogance, but we do say it boldly. We aren't saying there isn't truth in other world religions or other faith streams. Those have a little bit of light. But they are all partial and incomplete arrows pointing towards Jesus. Throughout the sermon, I've been making the central claim that Jesus is the greatest teacher of all time, a complete master at his trade. That's why the end to John chapter 6 shocks us a little bit. Our last few verses, John chapter 6, verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
Bible scholar C.H. Dodd observed, he said, positively, the work of Christ is to bring life and light. Negatively, it results in judgment upon those who refuse the life and turn away from the light. The signs, again, are so recorded as to bring out this double significance. Christ breaks the bread of life for the multitude. As a result, many were scandalized and went away and walked no more with him. Self-condemned. You see, Jesus, the master teacher, calls every human being, his immediate audience that day, and by extension, all of us for the next 2,000 years, he calls us to make a decision. Is Jesus the Son of God, the centerpiece of history, the one to be worthy to be our Savior and Lord, or not? We don't do ourselves any favors, and we certainly aren't effective ambassadors for Jesus if we waffle around. Not really saying yes, not really saying no. We are called to make a decision about who Jesus is, and then we're called to live like it. Well, we've sat at the feet of Jesus today, listening to the greatest teacher who ever lived. He captured our attention with an amazing miracle. He, we've gained understanding as he directed us to the main point. And in the end, he has called us to a decision about what we have learned. A man named William Arthur Ward said this famous saying, The mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, and the great teacher inspires. Some of us today need to stop messing around, stop going in circles, and simply commit to making Jesus our Lord and Savior. Some of us need to, to decide this day to step out of our fears, out of our comfort zone, and begin to teach those around us who so desperately need to hear it. Some of us need to teach and mentor the next generation and empower and equip them to do the work God calls us to do. The only thing we can't do today is walk away and do nothing. The greatest teacher won't let us get away with that. Amen? Bev, come pray for us. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord Jesus, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Forgive our sins and draw us to yourself. 